this is Christian McBride, and you're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. And it is 7 p.m. here at WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. Time now for Talk Out of School. out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study them hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. My name is Laini Hankson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. My guests this week are Carol Burris, the Executive Director of Network for Public Education, and Charles Seiler, political consultant and a former lobbyist for vouchers, who will explain how there's a nationwide push right now to privatize our public schools, who is behind it, and what we can do to stop it. But first, some news. New York Governor Hochul announced that as part of her proposed budget, the cap on charter schools would be raised and all geographic limits eliminated, which would allow about 100 more charters to be open in New York City. Actually, since there's a loophole in the law that lets charters expand to new grade configurations once they've been authorized, whether elementary, middle or high school, this could actually open up 300 more charter schools in New York City. We already have the vast majority of charters in the state at about 275, and we're forced to spend about $3 billion a year on them, not counting the services, staff, and expenses that co-located charters and public schools get for free. We were glad to see that there was an immediate pushback among many legislators, and especially here in New York, who blasted the proposal. I'll put a link to the press conference held in front of City Hall, the video which included a host of state senators and many parent leaders pointing out the huge potential costs to New York City and also the fact that we are the only district in the state and indeed the nation that is legally obligated to help pay for charter schools rent if they're not provided free space in our public schools. This is in a city where we have some of the highest rents in the nation. We're also the only district in the state excluded from state reimbursement for the costs of charter expansion called transitional aid which has deprived New York City of more than $2.6 billion since 2011. We have an email campaign on our Class Size Matters website where you can send a message to the governor and your state legislators urging them to drop this proposal and make other changes to the charter law, including repealing our financial obligation to co-locate or help pay for their rent and to require more accountability and transparency for the entire sector. We've also drafted a resolution for community education councils and other organizations to consider along the same lines. I'll put the links to both in the resources section of the podcast and WBI website. Last week, state education budget hearings were held, and many groups, advocates, and organizations invade against the proposal to expand the charter cap. Chancellor Banks also testified and was noncommittal on the proposal saying this was a matter for the mayor to determine the city's position. But under close questioning from Senator Liz Krueger, he admitted that the city's Office of Management and Budget had estimated the cost to DOE of the proposal of about $1.3 billion more. When questioned by Senator Liu, however, about the new class size reduction law, Banks complained that this would cost the DOE about a billion dollars, while not mentioning its benefits to New York City students. Lou pointed out that the DOE was receiving more than a billion dollars extra from the state because of the settlement of the campaign for fiscal equity lawsuit. So this was hardly an unfunded mandate. But if, if the DOE needed more funding, banks should make that clear. Banks said that it would be difficult to meet the mandate in the law starting in year three. He also said that he would form a working group to help develop the plan, something we've long proposed, and we shall see who's appointed. Hopefully, this working group will include some of the many advocates, parents, and elected officials who have long supported the need to lower class size in our schools and to help DOE come up with an effective, affordable, and equitable plan rather than the few who oppose the law and will work against it. 
I also submitted testimony pointing out the many ways in which DOE has undercut its ability so far to reach the benchmarks in the law by cutting school funding, slashing the capital plan for school construction, and refusing to cap enrollment in our most overcrowded schools. I'll put a link to, in, to my testimony in the resources section of the WBAA archives and the podcast. Now let's turn to our special guest, Carol Burris, Executive Director of Network for Public Education, and Charles Seiler, a political consultant and former lobbyist for school vouchers. Welcome, Carol and Charles. Thank you, Lainey. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Lainey. So, Carol, let's start with you. What are the various forms that school vouchers bills take? In what states are they being pushed right now? And where have they passed? Yeah, well, the traditional voucher was a payment that would go to the school. So the parent would apply for a voucher, and then depending upon the state law, they would be eligible or not. And then that portion of the tuition that went along with a voucher would be paid directly to the school. However, we haven't seen many of those programs in the last few years, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, One reason is that very often they're illegal in some of the states because of the Blaine amendments that they have. Um, But the second reason... Explain what the Blaine amendment is for people who might not know. Yeah, a Blaine amendment um, says that um, no public dollars can be given to a religious school. Um, Now, that's with the recent Supreme Court rulings. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into the weeds into that. I'm not even sure (laughs) that any of the Blaine amendments now um, would would still be upheld with the scrutiny of this particular Supreme Court. But nevertheless, what they've done, and Charles will talk a little bit about this because this was part of the strategy that that he worked on before he saw the light, um, is they would devise these very clever schemes whereby the money would be given to the parent and it would be the parent who would then spend the money. Two primary mechanisms to do that. One is through uh, tax credit uh, programs um, where individuals and or corporations could get a tax credit, sometimes of 100%, for money that they would give to a scholarship organization. Then that scholarship organization would distribute the money to families for private schools. The one that's become the most popular is the one that is the most irresponsible um, form of vouchers of all, and that's called ESAs. Sometimes ESA stands for education savings account, sometimes for education scholarship account. And now they're using it um, as the umbrella uh, voucher that they're using for what are called education freedom accounts. And essentially what happens with an ESA is that money is collected and it can be collected through a variety of ways. Sometimes taking it from state funds, sometimes taking it from school districts, sometimes taking it from tax credits, and then it is distributed to families, often using a debit card, um, whereby the parent can then use those funds to pay for a variety of things, not only private school tuition, but also for homeschooling expenses. And they can even squirrel the money away and use it later to pay for college tuition. So it's really become a free-for-all. Arizona's program, which was the worst, which is the worst and was the first, um, has just been fraught with all kinds of fraud and problems and people buying outlandish things using these public dollars. Um, And the other problem that we see with all of these programs is that they always use this camel's nose under the tent strategy so that they may start small with a group of students that the public would see as sympathetic, students with special needs, the children of active service members, and then over time expand it. And what we're seeing this season, which is really frightening, is universal ESA programs. 
So that what they're doing with a lot of these bills is they're even skipping over the sympathetic kids group and going right, you know, for the full Monty of vouchers and offering them to everyone. Bills we're especially worried about are Florida. They already have an ESA program. The proposal is to open it up to everyone. You can be a millionaire. You can still get this voucher money. There's an estimate now out there. It'll cost the state $4 billion with most of the money pulled right from the school districts. Uh, Texas, we're very worried about. An ESA bill has passed in Iowa. Another one has passed in Utah. And um, it's it's kind of whack-a-mole. I mean, there is going to be a terrible bill that's going to be coming out of Arkansas, which not only has a universal voucher in it, but also has this massive expansion of charter schools, as well as horrible punitive legislation toward teachers, the narrowing of curriculum and the censoring of 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 curriculum around sex education, around um, diversity training and diversity um, initiatives by schools. So it's been a tough season, Lainey. We're currently following about 70, over 70 bills. I mean, there's a few that we're still keeping an eye on that look like they're dead, but there's about 70 of these bills that are either charter expansion bills or voucher bills in their various forms. And in how many states, approximately? Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, off the top of my head, I don't know, but it has to be at least 25. I mean, it's pretty much every red state. Um, I don't know of any in blue states. We were worried about Pennsylvania, um, but it looks like we think that might be okay. Um, but in pretty much all of our red states, we're seeing bills either expanding the programs that they have now or putting in place new programs. And this, these funds would be eligible for families who already send their kids to private school. Isn't that right? In many cases, yeah, in most, in most cases, that is the, that is the case. Um, there are a few, uh, I was talking with activists in South Dakota. That's a traditional voucher bill, uh, so is North Dakota, and that's a very limited bill. But most of these bills are either expanding to include everyone or they have the family income so high it's it's just to the point of being ridiculous. I mean, there are states that are where people basically have low incomes. However, they're capping it out at like $170,000 a year, which pretty much makes everybody eligible. So, Charles, you have a really interesting background. Can you explain a little why you used to lobby for vouchers and what changed your mind? And also the the backstory of who's financing this aggressive move towards school privatization throughout the country. Yeah, so the reason I supported and advocated for, lobbied for, and, and did PR work for school privatization is that I legitimately believed that the best way we could help people was to give them more options, was to... Um, basically allow families to have more choices. Um, but the reality is, and, and one of the things that, that I enjoyed about that work was being able to look at the outcomes. So, so my background academically is in economics. And so I love like looking over the data and trying to see where the good stories are that we can tell with that data to kind of continue to sell um, the, the policies that we were advocating for. And it, I kind of ran into a bunch of roadblocks. It, it, in some ways, the data that we had didn't show the kinds of results that we were telling people we were going to see. Um, and we actually saw a lot of, a lot of learning loss on, you know, once voucher programs and whatnot got enacted. And then the other side of it was a, a real active, um, disruption of any efforts to actually put, uh, mechanisms in place that we could see how students were doing. So uh, while I was working at the Goldwater Institute, one of the places that, that designed these ESA programs as this money laundering scheme to get around these Blaine amendments that Carol talked about a moment ago, um, 
uh, I asked like, hey, why can't we just put in like these little testing requirements or, or these kind of like academic like data points where we can see what's going on with the students and the people working, my colleagues and stuff would be like, oh, yeah, that's great. Whatever. We love that. But then nothing would ever happen. And and when you have the kind of like legislative influence that the Goldwater Institute does in Arizona, if they wanted that to happen we would have had it so the fact that it didn't told me that they didn't want it and and they've continued to fight it whenever it's been put 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 up there but the reality is i i just looked at the outcomes of the work that we were doing and it was just undeniable that it was harmful not only to the students but to, to the school systems and also the communities around them uh, and, and arizona is kind of ground zero for that we have um labor shortages where it's difficult to find qualified employees because some of the uh, so the education is is so poor that that people don't people graduate and then aren't able to actually like complete different um professional certifications and things like that um i've talked to uh executives at hospital systems in arizona where they struggle to recruit uh, doctors and other like top tier professionals because those people don't want to bring their kids <laughs> to a state where the schools are terrible um so, so really, and the schools this, are terrible in part because they're so underfunded, isn't that right? That is why they're so terrible. They're not bad schools when you look when you look at what the educators are doing in public schools in Arizona with resources that they don't have. The students are actually doing incredible for what we're investing, um, but because the investment is so low, everybody in that system is hamstrung. And so the idea that that it's like oh the free market and competition will will bear it out well they're they're like they're like running a race and they're putting giant weights around the public school system and and then criticizing them for losing um so so it's it's really uh it's a political battle where they are putting their fingers on the scale and and really making it impossible for school public schools to even compete with these private options and even still those private options are underperforming the public school system. right the research is pretty is pretty negative on the results of vouchers wherever you have decent studies on that i think but do either charles or, or carol you want to talk about some of the big money that's behind the privatization schemes and and what the actual motivation is you think by the people who are funding these efforts? Yeah, no, you want to jump on first? Charles. Yeah, let me let Charles in because well, he knows these guys. <laughs> well, so a lot of, I, I mean, it's kind of disparate groups. Um, and so you have people like the Betsy DeVosses, the Bradley Foundation folks, the Walton family, you, the Koch brothers, or I mean, well, now it's just the Koch brother at this point. But um it, you have a lot of groups outside of those like super wealthy individuals uh, who come into this space with like um, philosophical motivation. So maybe they have like very conservative social or religious views. And so that's why they're involved. You do have some people who are just in it for the grift. They see an opportunity to make some bucks. And so I think you really see a lot of that in charters, uh, which Carol can definitely talk about. And um, but then you also have these folks who are incredibly wealthy who want to make sure that there is no effective way for people to collectively organize and exert political power to resolve any inequities in our society. And that is their biggest, biggest goal. And that's why the same people who fund anti-public school work through all these privatization schemes, they also fund anti-union work. They fund uh, voter suppression work. They fund anti-minimum wage uh, work. They fund everything from anti-public transit stuff. They don't even want people to be able to like move easily to get together to organize against their entrenched positions of power. And um, so it's all very connected uh, there. So the, and they the want to keep taxes low too. Isn't that part of it in a sense? Is that yeah. if you don't have well-funded public schools, uh, you can you can uh, keep taxes low, right? So eventually, their goal is to get rid of the voucher programs and the charter schools too. They don't want to pay for those either. Like those are still tax, but but once they've got everybody in in these 
these choice schools, you know, these private schools uh, systems, you've already removed kids out of communities to where they're going to different places so their parents don't know each other, they aren't able to network together, and, and it becomes a lot easier to, to exert that kind of influence when all of us are, are individuals out here with very little access to meaningful levers of power in our political system. And when they control it, um, yeah, they're going to make sure that they don't have to spend money on it. They're, they're going to fund the police and, and their own protection. Uh, and that's probably it. Yeah. Hey, Carol, do you want to talk a little bit about Alec? Yeah, well, that's the other thing that we see all the time is is that the bills that we see are almost cookie cutter bills of each other. So I'll look at a bill and, you know, I looked at the bill in North Dakota, the bill in South Dakota was exactly like the bill in North Dakota, the bill in Florida looks an awful like, uh, like the bill in Oklahoma. So you have this legislative council that is is composed of a variety of business interests as well as a lot of the folks that uh Charles were talking about and they crank out these bills and they go to the legislature and they find uh someone usually a republican um right wing and they put put it in his hand and say okay this is what I want you to introduce and that's what they do i mean i can't overemphasize what charles was saying before you know, you start to talk about these things and people like sort of scratch their head and they go, oh, you you must be paranoid or you're, it's, <laughs> you know, it reminds me of the old saying we had in the 60s, Lane, you know, just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean that somebody's not out to get you. And these folks are definitely out to get public education. There was a lobbyist in Utah that was caught on a hot mic recently and what she said, she came out and admitted was as she was lobbying for their ESA voucher bill, she was like, I want to kill public education. I mean, she came right out and she said it. And, you know, there's the hatred of unions. I mean, that's part of all of this, too. But the whole idea, this started back in the 1950s with Milton Friedman, who in many ways was, in my opinion, a real crackpot. I mean, he thought the AMA was a... Uh, was a cabal, and, and you know, and part of what he really believed was that there should be this idea of the funding following the kid, that it's, it's backpack funding, that you do a full voucher system. Um, and he also, people have come across some of his writings and statements where he would say things like, well, should should we even mandate education? Should we fund education at all, right? And there was a legislator in Arizona who said, well, maybe we shouldn't mandate education. Um, so, I mean, where they're, where they're going ultimately, I believe, um, is to the system of education where parents get a certain amount of money, might be $6,000, $7,000, depending on the state. And then they have to go out and they have to shop for a school. And it may be an online school. It may be a charter school. It may be whatever remnant of a public school is left or a private school. And then eventually what that will um, enable them to do is to keep on reducing the amount of money in the backpack or not increasing it as costs increase until we are back to a system where K to 12 education is self-funded by families. That's their dream. And then some kids will not be educated at all. And I believe what will happen is you'll, <laughs> the dream is to be in a system where a public school will be sort of an online school with somebody standing at the door with their arms crossed and kids just sitting there bleary eyed on a computer because that's the education that that system will afford. And when you think about it, it's chilling. Suppose you're in this very conservative town somewhere in, you know, the middle of wherever, and the only school that's available is a religious school, and you're not a member of that religion, or they don't allow gay kids. And, you know, and you're a kid who's gay. What do you do? The only options that will be available will be some you know, terrible online school. 
This is Laini Hameson on Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. I'm talking to Carol Burris of the Network for Public Education and Charles Seiler, a political consultant about the aggressive push towards school privatization. Um, I've actually heard recently that there are also uh, bills that are being introduced to, to repeal child labor laws. Have you heard that? Yes. I mean, it's almost like they want to go back a hundred years or more into an earlier sort of agrarian period of, 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 of history. Um, one of the things that um, has been very effective or, or they try to push this notion of parent choice, right? That um, parents should be able to choose what kind of mode their kids' education will consist of. And Peter Green, who blogs at Education has pointed out, though this is really not about parent choice at all, because many of these schools, as you just mentioned, Carol, exclude LGBTQ kids, uh, special needs kids, uh, do not cover the cost of a real quality education, but are really about education on the cheap. So they're about saying, I'll give you a couple grand to sign away your rights to a free and appropriate public education. So how much, I mean, how much can you see the potential effects on the public school system? How many dollars could potentially be withdrawn from the public school um, system if these uh, uh, voucher bills pass? Do you have any estimates? Well, it's going to depend. It's going to depend on states. Um, I'm going to tell you what's predicted in Florida, and then maybe, Charles, you can talk a little bit about what's actually been happening in Arizona, where they're breaking the budget. <laughs> um, in Florida, the um, the Education Law Center, um, as well as uh, an organization in Florida itself that monitors budget issues, and I'm sorry, the name is escaping me, um, they're estimating $4 billion coming out of Florida public schools if this bill passes. And, you know, they're already getting tons of money sucked out by charter schools. Um, Florida has a huge number of for-profit run charter schools in, in, in their state. So they're getting hit on all sides. Plus the, the funding is terrible <laughs> to begin with. So, you know, you start to see where the, where they're going. I mean, they want, they want to break the bank. Um, that is the motivation. Um, New Hampshire's bill was only supposed to cost a small amount of money. Now they're up to the millions with, um, hundreds of millions with 80% of the kids that are taking their ESA vouchers. Kids that were already in private schools and whose parents had no problem affording them. Yeah. I actually testified on New Hampshire's bill. Um, and they had estimated the cost. I think. It was under 30 million. I think it was closer to 20 million. And we were, all of us were pushing back on that saying like, it's so expansive. You're going to have so many homeschooling and private school families jump on this and it's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's exactly what happened. Even though the advocates were telling us it's not possible. Families won't do that. (laughs) Of course, they're going to take the free cash. And, and so now. The way that their education is funded, they, they rely heavily on local property taxes. So much of the state aid is going out in vouchers that the local school systems are struggling to the point where they're looking at having to raise local property taxes. Um, Arizona, our voucher program, we've never really seen any uh, notable increase in private school enrollment in Arizona, despite having ESA vouchers for over a decade now. And our costs are now ballooning. They're running up towards uh, 300 million a year. And, and there's some estimates that within five years, we'll be spending a billion dollars a year on these vouchers when our entire school budget, uh, our school spending uh, from the state is right around four, four and a half billion dollars. So, I mean, this is a significant chunk of money. And there's no real oversight to make sure that even the, the, Parents who say they're homeschooling are doing, even try to do an adequate job. Isn't there examples of people using the money for all sorts of illegitimate expenses? Is that right? 
yeah, we've seen people pay for everything from like iPads to abortions to trip <laughs> to like to trips. I mean, it is wild. And and the reality is that the legislature intentionally underfunded the audit um, body, the body that was supposed to audit this program. And so the audits have been very few and far between. And, and so we only we don't even know about the full scale of what's happened. And also there's no real active effort to claw back those funds either, because for them, it's not really about whether or not the money spent responsibility. The goal is just to get it out of the school system. It's just to chip away at the foundation of public schools. I mean, there's families here in Arizona that have six figure balances as the money rolls over year after year. They're just not spending it. They're not even using it. And often when the kids graduate high school, the state stops tracking what happens to those funds so we don't even really get to see what they do with it after that. And there's no measurement of learning, none, mm-hmm. zero, zilch. I mean, even in the vouchers, there are some voucher programs where they say that the child has to take a standardized test, and then they'll give them a variety of tests they have to take. They could take the SAT, they could take AP, they could take a, a state test, you know, a variety but they don't do anything with it. Right? A lot of them don't even make you report it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, you're going there and you go, well, where's the accountability? Suppose this child is learning nothing, nothing, zero zilch. They don't say, hey, look, you got to stop taking the money and get your kid back into a real school. In Arizona, I was shocked when I looked at their ESA program. There is nothing that a parent has to do to get the money the following year other than spend the money (laughs) the year before. They don't have to do a portfolio. They don't have to hand in an essay. I mean, that's what breaks my heart, Lainey, more than anything else. I feel as though we're just having this large number of children who are not being educated in Arizona, they would have parents that would um, that would take the ESA money, claiming to be homeschooling. They would buy material, educational material, on an approved list from the local Walmart. Then they'd return it and get a gift card. So you know, if you have a family that's cash strapped, and they don't really invest in their children's education or believe that it's important. I mean, it becomes a money-making scheme. Uh, There were recent reports of trampolines being bought, families going on trips, all of it perfectly legal and approved by the state. I'm calling them now entitlement spending accounts. That's what ESA stands for. It's a big entitlement program where you get to spend a whole lot of money. And I don't know what's conservative about this. I mean, I always like to joke, this is a program that'll make Bernie Sanders blush. I mean, they're, they're just pushing, pushing money out the door with no accountability and no protections for children. So I think we're going to take some calls now, hopefully callers, if you have any comments or questions on these issues related to school privatization, what's happening around the country, who's funding it, and what else we can do to stop it, uh, please give us a call, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Um, At the beginning of the show, I talked a little bit about Governor Hochul's proposal here in New York City to raise the cap on charter schools. Carol, can you talk a little bit about what's happening with the legislation around charter schools around the country? And how does this how does that fit into this movement? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of the charter school bills that are out there look to be bills that are trying to get money in for facilities that seems to be the new big deal with charter schools. And of course, that's where a lot of scamming and profiteering occur, um, is in the facilities business with charter schools. The bill that um, is going to come out, apparently from Sarah Huckabee, uh, the new governor of Arkansas, former spokesperson for Donald Trump, Um is also includes a lot of expansion of charter schools, the lifting of the cap on charter schools, no voice in the school district on charter schools, 
um, they don't have to even be informed, I guess, that a charter school is applying and could be approved. Um, facilities funding for charter schools. We expected to see a charter school built in South Dakota uh, pass be just because the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools were bragging that that was going to happen. Um, there was an attempt to pass a bill to put charter schools on Native American um, territory and reservation, but it died. So unless something pops up last minute, I don't know. It looks like a lot of the energy um, has been around vouchers. How many yeah. states currently have allowed charters and how many do not? Uh, there are now only five states that do not allow charter schools. So the vast majority of them do. Uh, let me see. We, we have Vermont, Nebraska, Montana, South Dakota, and North Dakota. And Kentucky, they have a bill now. They passed a bill for charter schools. Then they never funded them. Then last session, they passed a bill to fund charter schools. However, that is now being challenged in the court. So whether they're going to have charter schools or not in the future, I'm not sure. Kentucky is a very interesting state right now, too. They passed a voucher law, and their Supreme Court 9-0 said, uh-uh-uh-uh, they have a very strong state constitution to protect public schools. They said this bill is not working. So what are they proposing now? They're proposing a bill to punch a hole in the state constitution. And put um, put uh, um, up for on referendum the allowing of of vouchers and I'm sure charter schools in the state. Whether or not if the bill passes, that would actually pass. Who knows? To be honest, um, whenever these bills come up for vouchers, the public always votes them down. They you know they never pass on a ballot. I think the only bill I can think of that passed on a ballot was. Washington's charter school bill, and it took Bill Gates about three times before he could even squeak that in. Yeah, I think like there's been roughly 26 or something voucher bills that have made it to public ballots, and they've all failed. And part of the strategies they've used is to not say that these are vouchers anymore because vouchers are so unpopular and to call them tax credit scholarships, because scholarships always sounds like a good thing, right? Right. I always joke, and, and you know, when I say a scholarship, this is a scholarship. This isn't the, a scholarship a kid gets because they worked hard, right? This is a scholarship they get for showing up. Or they'll use savings accounts. And so people become confused when they hear an education savings account. They think, oh, I see the family gets a little bit of a tax deduction because they're saving for college. So they're always very clever, but I will say the press has been very good this year. Even though they call them these other things, the press always calls them out as voucher. Charles, can you tell about what you used to do when yeah. you disguise when I, these bills? When I worked at the Goldwater Institute, um, we, and we had ESAs, like the press would call them ESA vouchers. And so part of my job was to call the reporters up and, and basically try to convince them that they weren't vouchers and that they should change the article because we really didn't want that association. We saw that as politically problematic. And and that's what you see, too, is that they're always changing the name because as soon as the public catches on to what it is that they've called it this time, they lose popularity. They lose steam. And we're even seeing that um, there was a poll in Oklahoma just the other day, done by Republican pollsters, uh, showing that uh, earlier, I think it was maybe a year ago, they had polled on vouchers and about 64% of the state was opposed or so. But then they polled again just the other month and found 74% of the state is opposed. And this is a state that elected a Republican governor with like over 56%, you know, the vote. So um, I didn't see the breakdowns of of Dems and Republicans and independents there, but Republicans are notoriously, uh, as just regular people, voters and stuff, uh, are opposed to vouchers too. 
And so we see that again with every time it's been on the ballot, every poll that you ever look at, unless it's worded in a very specific way to get a, like kind of boost the numbers, um, they're not popular. Yeah, and I, I think that's why, you know, one of the reasons why Iowa and Utah passed was they just shoved them through so, 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 so fast. The governor of Iowa really wanted the voucher bill to pass, and she just ramrodded, ramrodded it through before any kind of a pushback could be organized. So I agree with Charles. We're seeing that, you know, you don't know, you know, there's going to be other bills that pass. I would never say there wouldn't be. But a lot of the steam seems to be going out because the more these bills hang out there, the more unpopular they tend to be. So callers, I'm, I want to encourage you to call in again, listeners, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. If you're concerned about vouchers or charters or anything else. Um, one of the things we've noticed in terms of the PR is that the charter lobby in New York, which is very wealthy, a lot of hedge fund managers, they give a lot of money to candidates and they also self-fund independent expenditure campaigns against opponents of charter expansion. But their ads never mention the word charter school because they know that it's not a popular issue with most voters. So for example, there were um, millions of dollars spent to elect our mayor, uh, Mayor Adams, um, around the issue of crime that never mentioned charter schools. And there's a tradition of this in New York State. The other thing that they do in terms of PR, which reminds me of the voucher issue, is that they're very adamant about calling these charter schools public charter schools, right? And so then everybody thinks, well, public charters, that sounds great. That just sounds like a regular public school, right? Without really explaining the distinction. Yeah, and it's becoming very tricky now because there's there's a case that's um, winding its way to the Supreme Court, or you have to see whether the court will take it. And it's a charter school in North Carolina, very right wing, run by for profit, that requires girls to wear skirts. And the rationale that's being given is that because girls are fragile vessels which is just, you know, language just pulled right out of the Bible. And um, so it's being challenged, and they are, what they are saying, and the people who support them are saying is, look, you can call it a public charter school, but charter schools aren't public, which is interesting because the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools is pulling their hair out. They don't know what to do with this stuff. So they're actually on the same side with the AFT, you know, um, opposing, opposing this. But the, the truth of the matter is, is time and time again, when push comes to shove, charter schools will argue that they're not public schools when it is in their interest to do so, whether it has to do with labor laws, whether it has to do with taking, um, paycheck protection program funds, or, um, the charter schools took to the tune of over a billion dollars. Or whether somebody comes in and says you have to run your school this way. Um, in Oklahoma right now, there is a Catholic organization, a diocese, that is putting into run what would be the first religious online charter school. And Betsy DeVos, you know, is praising this. So we know where this is coming from. And I am sure what they're expecting is this will wind its way up to the courts. And again, you know, they'll argue they're not public. So it's it's a real mess. It's frightening because what we may see then is a merger of voucher programs and charter schools. If you think about it, if you can get you get a lot more funding, right, for a charter school, you have lots of Catholic schools all over New York State and the city and other states that, you know, could very easily flip into a charter school and still remain a Catholic school and all of a sudden not have to face the financial pressures that they're facing, in part because of competition from charter schools. <laughs> right. In New York City, the Catholic schools have lost a lot of population, a lot of students to the charter schools. They're also hurting financially because they used to rely on the low-cost teachers of nuns and priests who no longer 
are necessarily uh, joining the church or available to them. Um, we also have all this these yeshivas, which are growing at a tremendously fast pace in New York City and across the state that presumably could get full funding from the state now. And in fact, uh, two council members just introduced a resolution to repeal the Blaine Amendment in New York to make it easier uh, for them to get funding. And our former governor, Governor Cuomo, used to be in favor of this. Um, luckily, he's no longer around, but I don't think that the issue is completely dead either. We also have all these Hebrew charter schools, which uh, claim not to be teaching religion, but culture, but are sort of on the edge of all these issues. So um, I think that the threat of religious, publicly supported religious schools are very, is very, very real. We do have a caller on the line. Um, caller, would you like to say what your name is, where you're from, and what question or concern you have for our guests? Well, it's Ellie from Brooklyn. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, Charles was saying that these corporate entities would like to destroy public education because they feel that public education facilitates organizing on the part of the public. Uh, could you explain that? How does having public schools actually facilitate education, or rather, organizing? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's a number of ways. Could you uh, speak a little louder? Yeah, my apologies. Um, but there's a number of ways that that um, that community that public schools facilitate organizing. Uh, one is just the collective power of the educators through uh, through unions. Uh, teachers unions are one of the last like uh, working class unions left in the country. I mean, we've lost so much um, political power among among labor um, over the last few decades. And, and really, educators are one of the, the last bastions. And that's why they have a big target on their back. But even beyond that, um, community schools, especially for rural communities, are meeting spaces. They're places where people come together. Even on weekends in places, you'll find people have church inside of these public schools and other things. But the but the point is, is that they're places where people all come together. They get to know each other, regardless of the different backgrounds that they have. Like I went to a high school in the Appalachians um, in rural North Carolina, and the wealthiest people in the community and the poorest people in the community, we all went to school together and we knew each other. But, but beyond that, the parents get to know each other as well. And they, they can develop bonds and, and recognize different issues, um, facing the community together. Uh, also schools are often a place that we, we start to actually address inequity and, and public schools aren't perfect. There are plenty of critiques and things that we should do. And, and public schools often reflect a lot of the like problems that we have in, in our society at large, but they are overwhelmingly a, a net positive that demonstrates the, the, the good that we can do when we all come together to work to do something as massive as educating every kid. Uh, and that's why the system itself is so important. Um, Educating children requires a strong and robust system. So, so destroying that system also deprives those, those future generations of the intellectual capacity to like challenge political power as well. So there's just a lot of different ways in which it all kind of comes together. And especially now, I think when we're so polarized as a society, right? We're pulled in so many different directions, Republicans, versus Democrats, liberals versus conservatives, religion coming into it as, as, as something which also divides us. Public schools are more critical than ever because they're potentially one place where we come together as a community, no matter what our background, no matter what our beliefs are. We form connections with each other. And then I think it's very true that as parents, I mean, I got involved in education advocacy first as a public school parent. And it really rooted me to the community, but also the larger politics of what was happening in New York City and across the state in a personal way that I had never been involved in before. So I think really public schools are something that can bring us together. And anything that threatens that 
I think, further divides us as a society. You know, it's interesting that you say that too, Lainey. Um, and one of the arguments that the Cato Institute makes for choice is, um, th- is the argument that, well, there's just too much arguing in society. So we should all go to, to a school where all of the people are, believe this. Agree with each other. <laughs> and I mean, it's, 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 it's a terrible idea. I mean, it, when you think about where we are now, where, you know, you either watch MSNBC and CNN or you watch Fox or, you know, One America, you're not hearing all of the size of, of the argument. You're only with people, um, who believe what you believe, and things tend to spin out of control. And you're absolutely right. I mean, a public school is is a place, as imperfect as it is, with our neighborhoods that are too often socioeconomically and racially segregated. But there is some diversity within the public school system, different points of view, different religions, and in the best systems, different races as well. And if we lose that, I I don't know what's going to happen to America. And, you know, you have to think about the school board, too, right? You said how you became involved in politics. I was on my school board for 10 years. Why did I run for my school board? I ran for it because I wasn't crazy about what was happening in the public school. And then I became active in it. You know, it's democracy in some of its purest forms. And it makes me so angry when the right refers to them as government schools. Because what they're saying is they're saying that you don't have the right to elect your neighbors to run your schools. Now, you may not like the neighbors you elect, but you know what? At least you then have the right the next election to try to elect someone else. And, you know, is that what they mean when they say government schools? Parents who give up their time all over this country, usually without being paid to try to make the local public school a better place. It's really very sad. And I think there's so many tactics and strategies that are being used right now to undermine parents' trust in their local public schools. Um, They are trying to undermine trust in the teachers, uh, challenge school boards, strip schools of any books that mention racism or gender discrimination, threaten to prosecute teachers or librarians who don't adhere to specific strict limits on what they can teach. Meanwhile, this renewed pu- push for vouchers and charters, these are seemingly all happening at the same time. And it really threatens the ability of supporters of public school who believe in this strongly to fight back. Um, both of you. Um, we've, we really wanted to hear from you some tools that parents can use to fight back teachers and parents, because a lot of teachers listen to this show as well. What resources uh, can, uh, can, can, can they refer to and, and what strategies can they use? Yeah, well, MPE has on, has on our website, and I know, Lainey, you're going to um, put it in the, in the chat for this program. Um, toolkits, which are one-pagers on a lot of these issues that give you some really strong arguments in defense of public schools and why vouchers and charter schools are not the answer. Um, we've even updated it to include micro schools, and don't get me started on that one. That's a <laughs> another crazy scheme that's out there now. That started um, during COVID, really. That started during COVID, and, and now the privatizers are hopping all over that. Um, and also, we keep up with bills regularly, and I've given you the link to that. So every day, Marla Kilfoyle, who works with me, she does an update on the bills. She, you know, shows us which ones are moving, which ones are not moving. Um, and then when we hear of new bills, we post those as well. If you happen to be in a state now that is fighting um, one of these battles against charters or vouchers, please get in touch with me. Um, you can email me at info at networkforpubliceducation.org or even cburris at networkforpubliceducation.org, and I will help you collect with others and also give you access to some of our folders that have specific tools for states um, that are now waging those campaigns. And you should specifically sign up for the 
uh, Network for Public Education on the website, because if you belong to one of the states that is currently considering some of these bills, I know that Carol sends out messages to the subscribers to tell them what they can do, who to contact, and how to help fight these bills. Charles, yeah. do, you, do you have any recommendations on on strategies that could be used as a political strategist yourself? I mean, for an ordinary person, what should they do? Should they read the newspaper? What should they do? I mean, it's, it's difficult, right? Because people have so many things going on in their lives. But I think contacting your elected officials and, and sometimes just having conversations with your neighbors, they might not pay attention to everything too. Make sure that they know. Those are probably the least costly things that you could do um, in your day to, to start to make change, but is to just help raise awareness about a lot of this. So, you know, letters, even letters to the editor of your local newspaper, and Charles is great at helping us craft some of those letters, and then we put them in the folders and states. Um, while people say, well, nobody reads the local newspaper anymore, there is one audience, and that politicians, and voters, <laughs> they, read, yeah. they read those local newspapers, and their staff read them. So letters to the editor, very simple, even if it's a short one. Um, very often get published, and I think it's a it's an effective strategy. We also have on our website a grassroots network. Um, you can find it there, and you can learn what organizations already exist in your state and what all of the organizations that are part of our grassroots network um, have in common is they are very um, opposed to the privatization of education. There may be a few that are a little more tolerant of charter schools um, than you and I might like, but uh, they're all opposed to vouchers. And I think, you know, people should really uh, subscribe to Twitter if you don't already. You can follow Carol Burris at, at Carol Burris, and you can follow Charles at Charles A. Seiler. Is that right? And um a lot of these debates are very, very um, hot right now on Twitter, but you can learn a lot as well. I want to thank both of you, Carol Burris and Charles Seiler, for joining us tonight on Talk Out of School. I'll put a link to many of these um, things that Carol mentioned and some of the other news that we referred to about the aggressive push towards school privatization that really threatens the survival of a well-funded public school system in many states across the country. I'll put information about that in the resources section of the podcast and on the WBAI website. This is Laini Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM and Pacifica Radio. Our show is also available as a podcast if you missed the live version or you want to recommend it to a friend. If it, you hear it through Apple, please leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. No other show on the air delves into the issues affecting our schools as deeply as this one. You can also contribute online at WBAI.org. We need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run any ads. I'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study them hard and hoping to I drove a New York City bus for 32 years, and I get the flu shot every year. When my doctor recommended it, I got the new COVID booster. Certain diseases change over time, especially this one. I'm not taking any chances with my life or with my family's life. I'm just not. If it's going to keep me from being sick, I'm all in for it. The booster works. The booster saves lives. I'm a senior citizen. 
The COVID booster gives me the protection that I need. I will not let COVID stop me from living my life. For more information, visit nyc.gov slash vaccine finder or call 877-VAX-4-NYC. That message brought to you by the New York City Department of Health. This is WBAI New York. As New Yorkers, we like things fast. And when it comes to COVID-19, it's all about acting fast. Acting fast to get tested and treatment if you have COVID-19 symptoms. Treatment works best the sooner you start and can help you avoid serious illness. So act fast, especially if you're over 65 or have pre-existing conditions. Call your health care provider.